An even more horrible day for the people of Ukraine. The lead starts right now. A helicopter crash outside a kindergarten in the suburbs of Kyiv and a Ukrainian cabinet minister and a child among the 14 killed. What caused this tragedy? Plus, she's called Matt Gates a fraud, used a clown emoji to describe Marjorie Taylor Greene and called her own party tone deaf on the subject of abortion. I'm going to speak with Congresswoman Nancy Mace as the swing district Republican fights for the soul of the GOP. And shocking new evidence against Brian Walsh, officially charged today in his wife's murder. Prosecutors say his Google searches included, quote, how long before a body starts to smell, quote, how to clean blood from wooden floor, and, quote, how long for someone to be missing to inherit. Welcome to The Lead on Jake Tapper, and we start today with the big story in our world lead. An investigation is now underway, and three days of mourning in Ukraine have begun after a helicopter crashed in a Kiev suburb earlier today. The crash at 8.20 a.m. Ukraine time amid foggy weather killed at least 14 people, including Ukraine's interior minister, five other government officials, and threw three crew members on board. At least one child was also killed, a girl named Malanka, according to the mayor. This after the helicopter came down adjacent to a kindergarten playground in the town of Brovery. The White House today said it does not yet know the cause of the crash, but joined global leaders in sending condolences to the families of the victims. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky called the crash a tragedy while speaking to the World Economic Forum in Davos earlier today and said even if it ends up being an accident, it was ultimately Russia's fault. There are no more accidents. This is the result of the war. And it's absolutely so. CNN's Clarissa Ward visited the crash site earlier today and starts off our coverage with a heartbreaking look at the reality of war. A quiet Kiev suburb turned into an inferno. The sounds of screaming can be heard. Minutes after, a helicopter crashed outside an apartment building just steps away from a kindergarten. On board, the leadership of Ukraine's interior ministry, including the minister himself, Denis Monastirsky, and his deputy, Yevhen Yanin. The chopper was bound for the city of Kharkiv when it lost control, smashing into the kindergarten as it descended. One child was killed. Rescue services work to clear the smoldering wreckage and search for survivors. Its neighbors looked out at the scene of horror. Alla tells us she ran outside as soon as she heard the explosion. We saw only injured children who were on fire. Sorry, she says. They were crying and running out from the school. Ukrainian security services have opened an investigation into the crash. For now, there is no suggestion that foul play was involved. There was heavy fog in the morning. But President Volodymyr Zelensky said every death is the result of war, even when it is far from the front lines. The wife of Deputy Minister Yanin sobbed in shock as she took in the scene. Another tragedy in a nation that has borne witness to so much horror. As daylight faded... Emergency services declared the end of the search and rescue, and the bodies were taken away. 
Now, Jake, in addition to the 14 people who were killed in that awful crash, uh, 25 people are injured. Ten of them are currently in the burn unit, including four children. And President Zelensky, when he was talking about this rescue operation, said that it lasted nearly nine hours. So a Herculean effort uh, to try to rescue as many people as possible and get them to the hospital. But notwithstanding that, 14 people died, including, as you mentioned, that one child, Jake. All right, Clarissa Ward in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Uh, Retired Brigadier General Mark Kimmich joins us now. He served as Assistant Secretary of State for Political and Military Affairs under President George W. Bush. General, uh, we know at least six Ukrainian government officials were killed in the crash, including the interior minister and then a number of civilians, including a child. A big blow for the Ukrainian government, emotionally devastating uh, for people in Ukraine. Do you think this sets Ukraine back in its war efforts at all? No, I really don't. I mean, the interior ministry has had a part to play, but this is probably primarily a Ministry of Defense operation that's happening on the battlefront. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it is tragic, and the loss of any government officials in important positions will have some measure of effect, but it would be much different if the Minister of Defense and the senior generals had been in that helicopter. President Zelensky uh, discussed the crash this morning during his uh, video speech shown at Davos today. He called for Western weapons to be sent to Ukraine more quickly. He said, quote, the time the free world uses to think is used by the terrorist state Russia to kill. Uh, Does he have a point? Is the West moving too slowly? Well, I I think at this point, the fact that the Russians still have a position inside of Ukraine and they've not been pushed out. uh, And the only thing that seems to slow the Ukrainians down at this point uh, has been the, the equipment and the ammunition delivery. I think he does have somewhat of a point. There has been, as people have said, deliveries that give them just enough to fight, but not enough to win. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte was on the show yesterday. I asked him whether his country will continue to support the Ukrainians, even if the war drags on for years and years. Take a listen to what he told me. Will there be at any point a limit in how much the Netherlands is able to contribute? No, we will continue to do this. If Putin would win this, it won't stop at Ukraine. It will continue. And then, in the end, uh, the collective safety of the whole West is under threat. Do you think there's a point at which the West will not be able or willing to help Ukraine as much as everyone seems to be in right now? Well, I think we're starting to see some of those fractures already. Uh, recently, the, the Germans have decided that they will not send their tanks in unless the Americans do the same thing. Uh, This uh, slow, gradual escalation of what will provide um, Ukraine uh, rather than provoke uh, Vladimir Putin, I think, is a clear signal to Putin that uh, he can wait us out. And there do seem to be some fractures within the alliance about how much we're willing to give, how much we're willing to support and how long we're willing to do that. Well, let's talk about that, because some of the weapons the West is now sending Ukraine are weapons that would not have been sent at the, at the beginning of the war last February, last March, for fear of provoking Putin. Do you think there, there is a red line here for Putin, a limit to how far NATO can go in helping Ukraine before Russia uh, takes even more drastic steps? I, I think the red line is the introduction of strategic capabilities like bomby, bombers and other uh, high-technology equipment of that level But more importantly, probably the red line is the introduction of NATO forces onto the soil of Ukraine. 
that probably is the red line where Vladimir Putin says, if NATO has troops in this war, uh, then I'm fighting NATO. And it doesn't matter if it's in Ukraine or if it's in Romania. As you noted, uh, Germany is refusing to send their tanks to Ukraine or allow other countries to send German-made tanks to Ukraine until the U.S. agrees to send American-made tanks. Why? Well, I think it's it's this issue of unity at this point. Uh, the fact is that the Germans were being asked to send their most advanced tanks into uh, Ukraine, but yet the Americans, whose tanks are even better and candidly far more plentiful in storage, we were unwilling to do that. So I think the German parliament just simply asked the question, if the Americans aren't willing to do it themselves, why are they asking us to do it? All right, Brigadier General Mark Kimmett, thank you so much for your time and expertise as always. Coming up next, the damning evidence laid out against Brian Walsh, the Massachusetts man charged in his wife's murder, even though her body has yet to be found. And the social media post today from Donald Trump that might reveal why classified documents, so many of them, were found at his property. Stay with us. In our national lead, prosecutors say missing Massachusetts mother Anna Walsh was killed and dismembered by her husband. The damning evidence against Brian Walsh was laid out during his arraignment earlier today, where he was officially charged with her murder. The evidence includes alleged Internet searches he made in the days before his wife disappeared. She was last seen on January 1st. She wasn't reported missing until January 4th and then by her employer. Prosecutors allege that on New Year's Day, Brian Walsh searched dismemberment and the best way to dispose of a body. He searched how to clean blood from wooden floor. And he searched, is it better to put crime scene clothes away or wash them? The following day, he also allegedly searched, quote, hacksaw best tool to dismember, quote, can you be charged with murder without a body? And quote, can you identify a body with broken teeth? By the way, prosecutors say he did some of those searches on their son's iPad. And that's just some of the disturbing evidence laid out by prosecutors today. Here's Jason Carroll with more. Rather than divorce, it is believed that Ryan Walsh dismembered Anna Walsh and discarded her body. Chilling new details revealed in court by prosecutors describing the evidence against the Massachusetts father who allegedly murdered his wife and tried to cover it up. Brian Walsh in custody since January 8th when he was charged with misleading investigators searching for his wife was in court for the arraignment Wednesday and formally charged with Anna Walsh's murder. Do you understand those charges, Mr. Walsh? I do. The prosecution laid out some of the disturbing evidence against Walsh, saying he used his son's iPad to make numerous online searches in the days before and after Anna Walsh disappeared. On December 27th, defendant Googled, what's the best state to divorce for a man? At 4.55 a.m. on January 1st, he searched how long before a body starts to smell. At 4.58 a.m., how to stop a body from decomposing. A not guilty plea was entered for Walsh, who said little in court, only shook his head once as more of his alleged searches came to light. At 5.20 a.m. he searched how to embalm a body. At 5.47 a.m. 10 ways to dispose, dispose of a dead body if you really need to. At 6.25 a.m. on the 1st, how long for someone to be missing to inherit. Prosecutors say Anna's employer, a D.C. real estate firm, was the first to report her missing when she didn't show up for work on January 4th. That's when police went to the Walsh's home for a well-being check. 
It was only at this time well, when they met with the defendant that he first reported his wife missing. During the course of the investigation, police found 10 trash bags from a dumpster and trash facility with items including towels, rags, slippers, tape, gloves, cleaning agents, a COVID-19 vaccination card with Anna Walsh's name on it, a hacksaw, and a hatchet. They also discovered personal items, including a portion of a necklace believed to have been worn by Anna Walsh in several photos. Tests of some of the items by the state crime lab determined the presence of DNA from both Anna and Brian Walsh. After the arraignment, defense attorney Tracy Minor called out prosecutors for leaks in the case, saying in a statement that read, in my experience, whereas here the prosecution leaks so-called evidence to the press before they provide it to me, their case isn't that strong. Minor also said it is easy to charge a crime and even easier to say a person committed that crime. It is a much more difficult thing to prove it, which we will see if the prosecution can do. And Jake, in addition to all the evidence that was outlined there in court, the prosecutor also said that there was evidence that there was blood found in Walsh's car. Again, here on the ground, Jake, there have been so many questions about motive. And when you're hearing through that laundry list, that terrible list of all of those Google searches, things can be missed. But I want to point you back to that one Google search on January 1st, which speaks about motive, how long someone missing to inherit. Jake. Yep. Jason Carroll outside the courthouse in Quincy, Massachusetts. Thanks so much. Coming up next, attempts to ease our PR disaster, the new approach by the White House to address the swirling questions about classified documents found at President Biden's private office and home. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, the White House developing a new strategy on how to deal with the fallout from classified documents found at President Biden's home and private office. The discovery has prompted the appointment of a special counsel to investigate. Meanwhile, former President Trump posted on his social media site, Truth Social, that he kept his own classified documents because they were, quote, a cool keepsake. Let's bring in CNN's Phil Mattingly. And Jamie Gangel. Phil, let's start with uh, Biden. What are you hearing about this new strategy? You know, I think it, it's worth noting that last week, even White House officials were, would acknowledge they were certainly unsettled, very much on their back foot, and very surprised throughout the course of the disclosures. The vast majority of officials inside the White House had no idea when these things were discovered, didn't know the entire review process was underway, and that led them to uh, very clearly seeming to leave out a lot of information, not really having a clear message or clear way to respond. What we've seen from White House officials really over the course of the last several days is what officials say they are going to try and maintain over the course of however long the investigation takes. Not obviously talking about the investigation itself. That has been very apparent in every single White House briefing. You're not going to see the president talking about it either, despite the fact he did a couple of times last week. They still want to focus on their agenda, on the schedule the president had in, uh, in play before any of this investigation started to kick into gear. But more than anything else, they want to focus attacks on Republicans, Republicans that have launched investigations into the president related to these issues, trying to kind of elevate them, isolate them, and make it a political fight as opposed to a legal one, which they know at this point in time they don't have a lot of control over. They did that to the Democrats, did that to Ken Starr, as I recall, back in the in the 90s. Um, Jamie, meanwhile, you have uh, Donald Trump intentionally <laughs> well, stating that he intentionally kept these documents because he wanted a cool keepsake. It's even better than documents. What he's claiming is that he kept hundreds of folders, not even the documents himself uh, themselves. He just liked 
the folders that said classified on them or confidential. Look, this is nonsense. This does not help his cause. If you're his lawyer, you are not happy with with anything about this because he's also admitting, whether or not it was the folders or documents, that he kept these things on On purpose, 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 which is the complete opposite of what And intent is relevant when it comes to this. Meanwhile, Jamie, congressional committees have launched investigations into President Biden's handling of these classified documents. Is the National Archives cooperating with these uh, committees? They are trying to cooperate. They sent back a letter last night. And what they said is their reality, which is as long as the criminal investigation is going on, they really can't do anything until DOJ, the Department of Justice, says, okay. And now there's the special counsel. So for them, are they cooperating by as far as they can? Yes. Is anything going to happen anytime soon? No. And Phil, before this all happened, it looked very much as though President Biden was was going to announce he's going to run for reelection this year uh, for 2024. Um, Has this changed that at all? Has this changed the calculus? I have not picked up any change whatsoever. And I think part of the idea of we're trying to maintain business as usual, there's going to be a sense of normalcy in how the building operates, despite the investigation that's ongoing. That extends to his political team as well. They've very much been laying the groundwork. They're very much prepared uh, for an announcement as soon as next month. I've not gotten any sense that that's going to change anytime soon. I think that's a big part of why you've seen the president really kind of shift his focus away from trying to engage on this issue, try and explain this issue, and focus on his agenda, on the key initiatives, and focus on Republicans over the course of not just this week, but probably the weeks ahead as well. They very much are planning uh, to move in that direction. Obviously, nothing's final until it's final, but nothing has changed yet as far as I'm told. All right, Phil Mattingly, Jamie Gingell, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Republican uh, Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, who is a member of the House Oversight Committee, where some of these investigations will be taking place. Um, So, Congresswoman, you're going to continue to serve on the Oversight Committee in this new Congress. Uh, What do you make of the National Archives delaying handing over information to the congressional committees for their investigations? They say they need to talk to the Justice Department first and defer to the special counsel. Well, number one, I want to say that no matter what happens, either in an investigation within Congress and within oversight or the DOJ, that everyone is treated the same, regardless of their political affiliation or if it's the current president or the former president. Whatever the protocol has been to date for the former president, it should be the same for President Biden. Uh, Both sides should be treated equally, in my opinion. I think that's the best we can do for the American people at this juncture. Do you see a difference in intent? Uh, There are two special counsels, one investigating Trump, one investigating Biden. Uh, The Biden people are saying this appears to have been accidental, inadvertent. Trump is on Truth Social saying, well, you heard Jamie's report about he brought the folders willingly because they were a a cool keepsake or something like that. Um, does, Does that matter to you? Well, what matters is what's in the documents themselves. We don't really know a lot because we don't have access to the classified or even top secret information to know what either of them had. And so it's really difficult to compare from that perspective. Um, I treat classified information very seriously, um, especially when we're talking about information about our enemies, China, Russia, and other countries who are not our allies like Iran as well. Um, And so it's hard to compare if it's apples to oranges or apples to apples until we have more information. CNN's Phil Mattingly uh, just reported that part of the Biden White House's new strategy is to attack House Republicans and to not engage in details. Uh, What do you think of that approach? 
Well, it's interesting because he hired a White House counsel for this, but this is really for President Biden. This is during his time after his vice presidency. So that really doesn't count as much as, hey, he's going to have to have criminal, this is a criminal investigation, he has to have criminal attorneys. And I guess one of the differences here between the former president and the current one is that for the last two years, the DOJ, FBI, National Archives, everybody knew apparently that the former president had documents at Mar-a-Lago, that they knew where they were, they had access to them, at least mostly or in part, we believe. And then in this case with the current president, for the last five years, nobody knew about this. And they didn't, they were in multiple locations Nobody's really certain uh, who had access to them and when. And so I, I do think there are going to be a lot of questions that have to be answered from that perspective, too. Yeah, I'm not sure how much access the National Archives had to the Trump documents. Um, I want to ask you about a different matter because you, Fair enough. you, say, you, said, you said a few days ago uh, that your party, the Republican Party's approach to abortion, uh, is tone deaf. Uh, you are anti-abortion. You're pro-life. You've said that if the party really wants to uh, reduce abortion, especially with the Democratic Senate and Democratic White House, um, they should be providing more access to birth control to reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies. Um, that does make a logical sense. Are Republicans taking your advice? Well, I'll be drafting some legislation in that, to that regard, and we'll see what both sides are willing to do. I represent a swing district, and it's important that we listen to our constituents and our voices. And I will tell you, the vast majority of individuals, Republican or Democrat, in my district, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, were very upset, frustrated, and angry. I held a number of town halls across my district in South Carolina, listening to those voices and really understanding that about 90% of the country aren't on the fringes. And they want to find some middle ground. And I'm willing to do that. And as you said, logic and common sense in this debate is what we should be focused on, is where we can find common ground. Birth control is easy. We have entire counties in South Carolina that don't have a single OBGYN doctor. And so if we're going to get serious about protecting women's rights, protecting the right to life, that seems like a really great first place to start. You'll see me filing legislation in that regard. We also cannot ignore women who've been raped or girls who are victims of incest. We have a backlog of 100,000 rape kits that have not been processed in this country. That's something else we're going to be working on. But I plan on taking a lead on many of these issues, listening to every side of the argument. I want to ask you, because you're on the Oversight Committee, you're going to sit with Republicans Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, who said that a plane did not hit the Pentagon on 9-11, uh, and Paul Gosar, um, both of them spoke at a white supremacist conference in the last year or so. Is that going to make the Oversight Committee's job tougher? And the reason I ask is because, obviously, it is an incredibly important job of Congress to provide oversight over the executive branch. But I wonder if some of these individuals, I mean, you once posted a bat, a poop, and clown emoji in reference to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, <laughs> I did. Uh, uh, I, I'm wondering if that's going to make your job tougher of, of important oversight. Well, I think the same thing could be said for the left. We saw in the 117th Congress that members of the squad who've gotten in trouble for perhaps anti-Semitic remarks like Ilan Omar, uh, those members were on the Oversight Committee. But I'll tell you, we've done a lot of great work. In fact, the last bill that I passed out of Oversight was with Congressman Ro Khanna out of California. It was a quantum computing bill that the president signed into law at the end of the year. So there are great opportunities to get good things done with the right leadership in place. And I do believe in Jamie Comer as our chairman. I am going to be handed a gavel. I will have a chairmanship. I'll be one of five or six committee chairmen on the Oversight Committee. And I plan on working hard, as I always have, in trying to guide um, what we do on oversight in that direction. See, one of the reasons I also ask is because I've seen a lot of oversight hearings. And I'm thinking about um, 
back when there were Benghazi hearings. There were a lot of Benghazi hearings. And Benghazi was a tragedy, and it was a serious issue, and a lot of horrible things happened. It exposed that there was insufficient diplomatic security. Uh, it exposed that the Obama administration didn't have a plan for post-Gaddafi Libya. Uh, there was the whole thing about blaming uh, this guy who made a video, etc. There, there was a lot of legitimate stuff to investigate and bring to the fore. But so much energy, so much airtime was devoted to people in your party's fringe. I'm obviously not blaming you for this. This is some years ago. But in your party's fringe, who would talk about just all these conspiracy theories. And I'm just wondering if you're worried, given the fact that you have individuals. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene said a plane did not hit the Pentagon on 9-11, you know? Well, I, I, yeah, and I, I say it's always been my concern. I've been very outspoken against conspiracy theories. But again, this is something I've seen in just my two years in office now in my second term. I've seen it on both sides of the aisle. I've seen a lot of performance art, political performative art. We saw that during the week of the speaker's vote, for example. But we see it over and over again. And that is one of the reasons that I believe there's so much distrust in Congress and in the federal government and our processes because we politicize so much rather than getting to the meat and potatoes of what the American people care about. Number one, in a swing district that I represent, that's inflation. Number two is abortion and then immigration and crime and other economic issues. And those are the things that we really ought to be focused on. And I hope that it doesn't take away, that does not distract from the work that Congress needs to be doing. And you'll see me being a very strong and determined voice on trying to make sense of it all and trying to push through the noise to get and deliver results. All right. Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, it's always good to see you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Just in, what a source tells CNN about two passenger planes that nearly collided at JFK Airport. That's next. Stay with us. And we are back with our world lead. Benjamin Netanyahu is not even a month into his new term as as Israeli prime minister, but a ruling today by Israel's Supreme Court may knock out a key member of his far right wing ruling coalition amidst Netanyahu's attempt to undermine Israel's independent judiciary. Let's get the details from CNN's Hadass Gold. Um, Hadass, what, what does today's ruling mean for Netanyahu's government? Well, Jake, this was a bombshell 10 to 1 Supreme Court ruling that could become a massive political and constitutional crisis for Netanyahu in Israel. The, Israel's high court essentially saying that Arya Derry, who had recently been appointed Minister of Interior and Health, could not serve as minister because of his previous convictions. Just last year, he was convicted on tax charges. He resigned from the parliament, struck a plea bargain, served a suspended sentence, and said in that plea bargain he wouldn't return to public office. But here he is today. So now Netanyahu will have to fire him or Derry will have to resign. But Netanyahu needs to tread carefully here because he needs Derry's party. The Shas party has 11 seats. And without those 11 seats, Netanyahu does not have power. So far, Netanyahu has not publicly said what he will do, whether he will fire or force Derry to resign. And Derry says he will continue to fight. But most likely, Jake, this will actually speed up what has already been a brewing crisis here in Israel over the power and the role of Israel's highest court. Yeah, I mean, how does this play into the confrontation over the power of Israel's independent judiciary and their Supreme Court? Yeah, this has been building for some time because Netanyahu and his government, they want some judicial reforms that part of them will also allow the parliament, which would essentially mean whatever party is in power, 
to overturn Supreme Court rulings. Now, backers of this bill say that it's been a long time coming. They've accused the Supreme Court of overreach and elitism, say this will bring balance between the three branches of government. But opponents of this, these reforms, including former Prime Minister Yair Lapid, including the president of the Israeli Supreme Court, and 80,000 protesters who flooded the streets of Tel Aviv on Saturday, I should say in pouring rain, say that this will completely destroy the independent judiciary, say it will destroy the checks and balances. Some of them are even saying it will lead to the beginning of the end of Israeli democracy. But if Netanyahu manages to get these judicial reforms through, it could potentially, I should note also, help his own ongoing corruption trial and could potentially pave the way back for Arya Derry to serve as a minister because under these reforms, they could potentially overturn Supreme Court rulings. And backers of the, these reforms are already saying today after this dairy ruling that they need to speed them up as a way to get dairy back. Jake. All right, Hadass Gold in Jerusalem for us. Thank you so much. Turning to our health lead now and fears over China's COVID crisis worsening amid Lunar New Year celebrations. The Chinese government, of course, basically closed the country's international borders for three years while not taking critical steps to get the best vaccines and prepare its hospitals. The country's healthcare system has now been overwhelmed by a surge in COVID cases ever since they abandoned their zero COVID policy last month, the government. As CNN's Ivan Watson reports for us now, since that abrupt change, China went from reporting just 37 deaths in a month to admitting that the number was closer to 60,000. A population on the move. Attention, please. After three years of restrictions due to their government's war on COVID, Chinese can finally travel again, just in time for the upcoming Lunar New Year holiday. In pre-pandemic times, this was described as the world's largest annual human migration. I haven't been home in three years, says this man at the main Beijing train station. Millions of Chinese people are traveling as COVID-19 spreads out of control. Chinese officials say COVID infections have passed their peak in many parts of the country, but there are clearly still concerns about the scale of the outbreak. For example, here in Hong Kong, authorities require all of these travelers arriving on high-speed trains from mainland China to get negative COVID tests first before they can cross the border. Last month, Beijing abruptly scrapped its strict zero COVID policy, the ensuing surge of sick people putting a strain on hospitals and health workers. Several social media videos show nurses sick with COVID collapsing on the job. I felt unwell, says this nurse in Shandong. It had been a week that I had COVID-19 until that day when I finally collapsed. Over the weekend, health officials who once prided themselves on keeping COVID out of China abruptly raised the COVID death toll since early December from several dozen COVID deaths to nearly 60,000 people killed by COVID. But the official U-turn on COVID has had other unintended consequences. At a factory in Chongqing, workers pelted police with what appeared to be boxes of COVID tests. Some biotech companies withholding salaries or laying off workers after the government suddenly stopped demanding the population take millions of COVID tests a day. The implementation of zero COVID and the abrupt and uh, unprepared manner in which it was abandoned, I mean, speaks to a chronic governance failure. One of China's richest provinces, Guangdong, spent around $22 billion over three years on pandemic prevention. 
A lot of these local governments are highly indebted. They've got big cash flow problems. This is a big problem that the central government and local governments will have to sort out uh, in this coming decade. But COVID just kind of made it worse, really. For now, uncertainty over public health and government finances has done little to dampen a palpable sense of excitement. Understandable, as Chinese emerge from pandemic lockdown to celebrate the year of the rabbit, the biggest holiday of the year. You know, Jake, I think it'll be some time before we can really assess the, the cost of three years of this failed zero COVID policy and now this abrupt whiplash where you've got maybe 85 percent of the population in some cities and provinces getting COVID now. The Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, he had fresh comments uh, on the pandemic today. Uh, he said that uh, the country has ended, uh, entered a new phase of the COVID-19 response and that tough challenges remain, but the light of hope is right in front of the country. Jake. All right, Ivan Watson in Hong Kong for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, going beyond Greenland's picturesque glaciers, the alarming study out today with information that could impact every single person on Earth. Stay with us. Just into the lead, new details suggest it is more likely that human error led to that scare at New York's JFK airport when two passenger planes nearly collided Friday night. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff plans. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff plans. CNN's Pete Montine is here. Pete, what is the status of the investigation right now? Well, the NTSB and the FAA are investigating, but the new development here is that we're hearing from a source familiar with this investigation that this status system lights, these special systems that are at airports like JFK and 20 airports across the country, were in fact working to warn that Boeing 777 operated by American Airlines to keep it from crossing the runway as this Delta Airlines 737 was taking off. There they are there. It's called the Runway Status Lights System, and it's at a few different airports across the country. This essentially warns pilots to avoid the exact incident like we saw play out. So this only further elevates the possibility of human error here as the cause. Was there confusion in the cockpit at the time? The big question now from the NTSB and other aviation experts we've been hearing from is will they be able to access the cockpit voice recording on board that American Airlines 777? The issue here is that flight continued on to its destination of London Heathrow, and typically the cockpit voice recorder only records things for two hours. Obviously, that flight is much, much longer. So the fact is, or the possibility is at least, that those recordings are lost, meaning that a key piece of data in this investigation might be gone. Right. And there is a move to have those flight recorders last longer and record much 25 more. 25 hours is what the NTSB wants. They've recommended that to the FAA. But the FAA simply says it just doesn't have the resources in place to put into place this recommendation from the NTSB. All right, Pete Montine, thanks so much. In our Earth Matters series, scientists say temperatures in Greenland have not been this warm in at least 1,000 years. A new report in Nature pieces together Greenland's history and how the climate crisis has impacted the island over the years. Joining us now, CNN's Bill Weir. Bill, what are the key takeaways from this article, The Study in Nature? Well, our colleague Fred Fleitkin was actually up in Greenland a decade ago when they first started drilling these ice cores. Now they've studied that data. They've gone back as far as the cores will tell them, a thousand years. And yes, it has warmed up, warmest in a thousand. But since 2001, it's one and a half degrees warmer than the 20th century, not to mention much warmer than pre-industrial times. You recall Paris Accords is trying to keep us at 1.5. In Greenland, they're already well above that. 
What are the future consequences? Well, it, it, it's all about sea level rise, frankly. There's enough sort of freshwater ice on land that if it ends up in the ocean at the current rates, by the end of the century, it'll raise sea levels at foot and a half. That's, but that would be just Greenland. The rest of the world's ice would be gone by then as well. If the whole thing goes, it could be 25 feet of sea level rise. That would take centuries. Uh, but we still control our own destiny. That is humanity in terms of how much planet cooking pollution is allowed to get up there. And, but in the meantime, coastal cities need to factor all of this in when it comes to engineering ports, uh, zoning, beachfront communities. This will be a long story. Is there anything that the world can do to stop this? Not, n- not to, n- they can make it less worse. We're, we're already beyond a certain tipping point as this thing is sliding. It's also affecting the Gulf Stream because all that lens of fresh water on top of the salt water changes ocean currents. There's so many other cascading problems as a point of this that are sort of underway, but we can stop the worst of it by decarbonizing as fast as humanly possible, which will be the biggest job we ever do. Yeah, and there's no will out there by the world leaders to, to do that. Not evidently, not yet. But the, the conversation is changing, and more and more people are coming to grips with the results, the effects of that cause, uh, what's happening up there. And we're capable of amazing things once people decide and put their mind to it. Uh, here's hoping we do soon. All right, Bill Weir, thank you so much. Moments ago, an appearance in court for the New Mexico Republican accused of wanting to shoot up the homes of Democratic rivals. What CNN learned after visiting the suspect's home? That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, what kind of a person offers to raise thousands of dollars for life-saving surgery for the dog of a homeless veteran, but then takes the money? And the dog dies. I'll give you one guess. Hint, he's a brand new member of Congress. Plus, new tragedy in the midst of an already devastating war. A helicopter carrying some of Ukraine's top government officials crashes right next to a kindergarten outside of Kiev. The latest on the investigation into what caused the crash. And leading this hour, the failed Republican state legislative candidate who allegedly schemed to have his Democratic rivals killed just appeared in a New Mexico courtroom. Solomon Pena is accused of masterminding and participating in shootings at the homes of four Democrats and hiring gunmen to carry out some of the shootings after losing his election in November. Pena, who is a Trump loyalist, insisted without providing any proof that his election was rigged. CNN's Kyung Law reports from Albuquerque, New Mexico, where Pena's neighbors say they are not surprised. We are on the record on Solomon Pena. Once Republican candidate, now criminal defendant. Solomon Pena made his first appearance in an Albuquerque courtroom, facing charges in what prosecutors called the politically motivated shootings at the homes of four local Democratic leaders. Go ahead and sign the order transferring this case to district court. An unsurprising turn for some of Pena's neighbors. Pena lived here on the third story of this condominium parked outside his car, affixed with political bumper stickers displaying his support of Donald Trump. We went to his condo complex, where neighbors say Pena forcefully argued with anyone who disagreed with Trump's lies about election fraud. People were unhappy with him and the way he treated and spoke to other people and the fact that he didn't have conversations. He had accusations and he had a way of telling people they didn't know what they were talking about. 
And always about politics. Always about politics, yeah. Pena didn't just talk about Trump, he followed him out of state. Video appears to show Pena at three different Trump rallies in Washington, D.C. In one video clip, his name is stitched into his hat. And in July 2021 in Phoenix, Arizona, CNN video captured a man who appears to be Pena in the rally crowd. Pena would later post a picture of himself as an attendee. A year later, Pena ran for office in New Mexico as a Republican candidate for the state house. He lost last November by a landslide. But Pena, echoing Trump, would not accept an election loss. Police say he targeted four Democrats to blame, finding their addresses and confronting them. So I went to the gate and that's where he was. And he seemed agitated. He seemed a little aggressive. I did tell someone about it and they said, you know, this guy's a felon. Mr. Pena, he orchestrated, he made phone calls. He basically hired people to shoot at people's houses. Pena is a convicted felon who spent years behind bars for grand larceny. One of the men he hired, say Albuquerque police, may have been in the same prison at the same time. What began as a political axe to grind quickly escalated, says Albuquerque's police chief. Text messages from Pena to the other suspects all hired guns point to a greater threat. The warrant says Solomon wanted the shootings to be more aggressive to ensure better target acquisition. People are pissed off about this. I'm pissed off about it. Um, this is goes to, to the, the heart of what we're all about in a democracy. You can't shoot guns at someone's house and just to terrorize them because they're an elected official and you have some crazy election denying motivation behind it. That is unacceptable. Now, the district attorney tells me that he is, quote, so pissed about this one that he's going to prosecute this himself. Uh, we did reach out to Pena's attorney. She did not call us back. He is being held without bond. Jake. Kyung La, thank you so much. With me now to discuss is former Metropolitan D.C. police officer Michael Fanone, who, as you know, uh, defended the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Uh, Mike, good to see you. As you just heard uh, CNN's Kyung La reports, investigators say this was definitively a politically motivated attack, a Republican election denier uh, getting people to shoot at the homes of Democrats. Um, does this concern you that we're still seeing this kind of deranged political violence uh, after two years after or, uh, one year after two no two years after uh, January 6. I mean it certainly concerns me uh, but it's not surprising yeah I mean that rhetoric the same rhetoric that resulted in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol uh, by MAGA um, Trump supporters uh, is the same rhetoric that continues to be used uh, by Republican candidates for uh, national office uh, all the way down to state and local elected uh, offices. And so, you know, we see this rhetoric inspiring acts of violence. So, I mean, I, look, obviously there are acts of violence committed against Democrats and Republicans. Uh, we saw the shooting uh, of Steve Scalise and the congressional Republicans playing baseball, the attempted assassination of uh, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. We saw the attack on Paul Pelosi uh, January 6th. Uh, and on and on and on. It does seem more prevalent on the right against Democrats than on the left against Republicans. But either way, there's too much of it. Um, how did we get here? Uh, well, <clears throat> like you said, I think violent rhetoric used by elected officials is always inexcusable. Um, and regardless of what party um, the individual using it is affiliated with, that being said, 
you know, Donald Trump invited these, uh, you know, Solomon Pena's of the world into the Republican Party. And they've become this, you know, what's referred to as the MAGA wing. And these individuals really have um, what seems to be like this apocalypse fetish. They believe that, you know, elections are being stolen from them, that the Democratic Party is, um, you know, changing the makeup of this country and and is taking rights away from them. Uh, And it has... brought about this reaction um, that is incredibly violent. I mean, if you look at the makeup of a lot of the individuals that were arrested on January 6th, you know, these quote-unquote patriots, mm-hmm. these are individuals whose backgrounds were filled with uh, criminal history, such as uh, spousal abuse, domestic violence, drug trafficking, violent assaults, uh, felony assaults. Um, those are the individuals that, uh, that Donald Trump welcomed into the Republican Party and that make up that, you know, diehard base that uh, the rest of the, you know, moderate Republicans can't seem to shake themselves free of. So the reporting suggests that um, a former staffer for Pena, Solomon Pena, said that he would get triggered by Republicans who did not support Donald Trump. Um, and obviously this investigation is just beginning, et cetera. But we know he was a big MAGA supporter. We know that he, he believed that in what Donald Trump was saying about the elections are being stolen. And then he thought that that happened to him in New Mexico, even though uh, he lost in a landslide. Do you see him as part of the continuation of what happened on January 6th? Oh, absolutely. And and I think that, you know, it it is time that we start to separate the MAGA wing of, and I I get the fact that, you know, it it occupies, there are elected leaders that occupy the Republican Party that ascribe to be, you know, Trump supporters. But it, it is become something completely different than a necessarily a political movement. It is a violent uh, criminal element that has a foothold in, in uh, our political system at this point. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, obviously not everybody who's in, in MAGA, but like a, there's clearly a, a, a section of that group that is, that is, that is uh, if they're not violent themselves, they, they excuse it. I mean, you saw how individuals on Fox attacked you and other police officers who testified before Janu- the January 6th committee, um, even though what you went through was horrible. Just, I mean, it's so difficult to understand a, a, a movement where um, people laugh at police officers protecting the Capitol, uh, dying or suffering debilitating, debilitating injuries for the rest of their lives. I, I mean, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, that being said, I mean, that's, that's where we are at this particular moment uh, in the aftermath of the Trump presidency. And uh, again, dealing with these individuals that Trump brought into our political system uh, who have now taken the Republican Party hostage. Yeah. Officer Fanone, as always, great to see you. Thank you so much. And thank you for what you did. Republican Congressman George Santos is in the doghouse. He's now accused of taking thousands of dollars from a homeless veteran who was trying to get life-saving surgery for his dog. Then new details about what police found when looking, what police were looking for when they searched the apartment belonging to the suspect in the Idaho student murder. Stay with us. 
In our politics lead, another day, another accusation of George Santos being a mendacious con man. Today, the embattled New York Republican congressman is denying claims that he used a fake animal charity to con two military veterans, allegedly stealing $3,000 Santos helped raise for life-saving treatment for one of the veterans' beloved and dying service dogs, Sapphire. CNN's Eva McKen joins us with details on this awful story. I mean, he, he literally was taking advantage of a homeless veteran trying to get money to help his dog? Well, that's what it certainly sounds like, Jake. The Navy veteran was connected with Santos, who at the time, as our viewers know by now, he goes by different names, was going by different names. He was going by the name Anthony DeVolder. Rich Ossoff's dog, Sapphire, had a tumor. Santos posted on Facebook using the name George DeVolder, so another name there, soliciting funds through GoFundMe for the vet and his dog. Now, the Facebook post, Santos wrote in part, said, Will you help this baby and her daddy stay together for a few more years? Does he not deserve to have her? Let's all come together to help this family of two stay healthy. But when Ossoff, he tried to retrieve the money, he just kept getting the runaround from Santos. And Santos never transferred the $3,000 to the veteran. Now, Santos told the news outlet Semaphore that this story, first reported by Patch, was fake and that he had no clue who this is. And CNN reached out to Santos as well. We will uh, tell you when we hear back from him. But it, it sounds very devastating, Jake. Eva, what do police have to say? What does GoFundMe have to say? And I hesitate to ask because I think I know the answer. Whatever happened to Sapphire? So Sapphire unfortunately died about six months uh, after the last contact with Santos. Ossoff said he didn't get very far with the police when he alerted them. Uh, Ossoff was forced to panhandle for the money to pay for her euthanization. He described this as uh, really devastating and dehumanizing. GoFundMe tells us they did remove the fundraiser from its platform after receiving a report about it. In, In a statement, they said, when we received a report of an issue with this fundraiser in late 2016, our trust and safety team sought proof of the delivery of funds from the organizer. The organizer failed to respond, which led to the fundraiser being removed and the email associated with that account prohibited from further use on our platform. You know, this is not an isolated incident involving Santos. This appears to be part of a long pattern of deception, Jake. Eva McCann, thanks so much. Let's discuss. Casey, if you wrote a villain in a movie who cheated a homeless veteran's dying dog, the studio would say this, that's too, that's too broad. Nobody would do that. Nobody would do that. They'd send notes back. And yet, I mean, according to this homeless veteran, and there's evidence, Uh that's what happened with uh, Congressman Santos. I mean, Jake, i got to be honest with you. I don't even know what to say. Like, I just don't. Like, you and I both do this for a living. We talk and cover, we report on, talk about, cover politics. Um, This story is quite literally beyond the pale. I mean, it is horrible. This poor dog, this poor man, um, anyone who's ever been in in a situation where they've loved an animal... Um, knows what it's like to have that kind of a, a connection. And in this case, the circumstances just really underscore. I mean, this was all that this man had, and George Santos took advantage of him, reportedly. So there was, uh, I'm thinking about um, congressional pseudonyms. I'm thinking there's Pierre Delectio, which was uh, when Mitt Romney's burner account. There's Carlos Danger, uh, Anthony Weiner's uh, pseudonym for it jake remembers but well i'm just saying like it comes to mind and now we have because anthony devolver i guess was his but nancy pelosi forced wiener to resign you know what i mean she's like no more this is embarrassing at what point does this and i know 
the margins thin. But at what point do you think Kevin McCarthy's like, this is such a distraction for what we're trying to achieve? Well, look, first of all, I hope he, maybe we can have a new GoFundMe. People now know who this veteran is. Let's, maybe we can get some money. So. Buy, a, buy him a new dog. Yeah. And, and he, if he's a wounded veteran, let's get him yeah. some money anyway. If he doesn't yeah. handle for anything, he should be taken care Absolutely. of. Absolutely. Yeah. And Santos has a right to defend himself, and he's under investigation. There's, there's ethics people looking at some of the things he's done. There's some foreign legal entanglements he's involved in. I think the speaker's position is let's let that play out. We don't need to jump ahead of that. He was elected by the people of his district, and... There, he has constituents to represent, and so until we know anything else, uh, look, the bigger picture to me is uh, this is a freshman congressman on the Small Business Committee. Yeah. This is not the end of the world. This is not someone who's in charge of nuclear secrets. Uh, so let's let this play out a little bit and find out exactly what has happened, and then I think either— Congress may take a role in that, the Ethics Committee, or the voters are going I mean, to take care of it eventually. it played out, in fairness. I mean, we have learned a lot about... Yeah, he, but Mike means the, 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 the Ethics Committee investigation. investigation. Well, I think you get into a dangerous place when you start saying, if someone's lied about their background, we can just throw them out of Congress. That, that's a really dangerous precedent to set. There's a lot of senators and members of Congress right now that we would throw out of Congress. Right. The President of the United States... <laughs> Claimed to be Golda Meir's, you know, liaison for the Six Days War and that he was appointed to the Naval Academy and that he went to the uh, Tree of Life Synagogue when he didn't go there. And that just on and on, he was a coal miner and he was a truck driver. And so, you know, he's the president of the United States and he has inflated his resume. He stole Neil Kinnock's entire life story at one point in his life. So, like, deep cut. Back to well, 1988. Yeah, 19, 19, <laughs> yes. What do you think? No, I mean, in some ways, politically, it's it, it's a problem for Republicans because he's an avatar, albeit an extreme avatar, of the chaos that's really beset the party, right? And it's all connected. The reason that he that Kevin McCarthy is in this conundrum is because he has a narrow majority, a narrower than expected majority, and it's because they can't appeal to to independent voters, a broader a swath of the electorate, and then you hold up, if you're a Democrat, you hold up Santos, that's not going to get you any more votes. What do you think? I mean, it's not just that it's a headache now for Kevin McCarthy. It's that it's going to continue to be a headache for him because these stories have been so colorful and audacious that they're just sort of catnip, I think, both for reporters and obviously for the investigators who are um, who are looking at him at both the state, local, and federal level right now. So... It's, it's just such a distraction. And I think one other thing about this story is that, again, because some of George Santos's cons have been so, frankly, funny, the volleyball story is hilarious. I think that you can explain what the volleyball story is because people he he lied and said that he was the star of the volleyball team at Baruch College, a college that he did not attend. He certainly was not on the volleyball team for Um that's pretty funny. But in this case, you know, he hurt real people. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the one thing, too, I will say, and as much as we have sort of talked about the, incre- the <laughs> how ridiculous the dog story is and how awful, I mean, he stole money from this man. Right. Right. I mean, that fundamentally is, is a crime. Um, you know, I mean, obviously the details of it have to be sorted through by the proper authorities. But that is the place where, I mean, yes, people inflate their resumes. They, you know, say, oh, I did this thing or I went to this place. That's not the same thing as somehow finding hundreds of thousands of dollars to fund your campaign and having no explanation for where it came from. Yeah. Right? That stuff is, at the end of the day, if George Santos is going to get thrown out of Congress, it's going to be because of things like that. Let's talk about the, both the current president and the former president and they're dealing with their classified uh, issues. Um, so for President Trump, uh, let's start with Biden. President Biden has a new strategy, according to Phil Mattingly, 
uh, one of the things uh, that Mattingly says that they're going to do is attack House Republicans and not really get into the details of it all. What do you make of the strategy? I mean, it makes sense. And the reason why it makes sense is because they're not dealing with good faith actors on the other side. It is incredibly easy, I think, for people to hear the words classified documents, president, and compare the two situations. And even if Biden comes out favorably, which of course he does. There's sort of the, if people remember Highlights Magazine, goofus and gallant, one person did everything right, the other person did everything wrong. It's still lots of not. Deep cuts today. <laughs> lots you of get deep Highlights cuts. Magazine in my house. Yeah, no, I got it too. I'm just saying it's a very Gen X panel. Yeah. Very Gen X. <laughs> Finish your point then, Marco. The point is that, like, it's still not the conversation that the Biden administration wants to be having. So they want to be able to say, look, it's different in a pretty quick way. And then they want to be able to say, But the people who are making this argument, Republicans in Congress, are not talking about this in a good faith way. They want chaos. They want destruction. I mean, look at the way the House Speaker vote went. And all they really want to do is talk about, say, Hunter Biden's laptop and not fully govern. I think that's a good strategy. I mean, this entire thing is absurd. Before the election, Donald Trump's residence was raided. Pictures were leaked of documents that he had. And it wasn't there was not a conversation of, well, let's look at the motives and make sure that the conversation was you should never, ever have uh, classified documents in your property. You shouldn't have it, whether it's under lock and key, it doesn't matter. Now, oh, Joe Biden had it. We knew about it before the election. We didn't let any of the voters know that. And oh, but but now his motives are different. He had it in his garage. It was a little different. That dog won't hunt. They the American people look at back. this. The, I mean, there is a tremendous difference between. And again, this isn't necessarily the argument I think that anybody wants to be having right now. But if we have to engage on it again, they did the right thing. No, there right? are some differences. One was under lock and key. One was in a garage. The president of the United States can declassify things. The vice president can't. One had just left office. The other one had them for over eight years after he left office or 12 years. I think there are a lot sex, of but, but once you get into the yeah. spin of what they're different, you've fundamentally lost a political argument. Yeah, well, I mean, and here's the thing. The two of you, right, are going back and forth of this from either side politically. This is the kind of stuff that the American people are just stripped sick of. Right. Right? Like, like this, I mean, it's the fact that people from each side of the aisle talk about this completely differently depending on which person that they pull, you know, the lever for when they go into the ballot box just makes it very clear to Americans that there are a lot of people out there that aren't acting or talking in good faith. Like, you're right, there are significant differences between these two cases. I mean, I would point to the fact that the FBI had to go, you know, subpoena these documents, try to get them back as the key difference. Mario, I just want to, Trump has a new excuse for the classified uh, folders in his possession. In a Truth Social post, he wrote, when I was in the Oval Office or elsewhere and papers were distributed to groups of people and me, they would often be in a striped paper folder with classified or confidential or another word on them. When the session was over, they would collect the papers, but not the folders. And I saved hundreds of them. They were a cool keepsake. I think after this, this entire episode, this is the most plausible. This is the first thing I think we all thought of when, when this happened and back just, in the summer. That, that he just took the that folders? That he kept it because he thought it was cool because it was a keepsake. No, but he's saying he just off. was keeping the folders. He didn't keep the actual documents. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that the DOJ has debunked that already, right? I mean, we know that there were documents found. Yes, but Trump is saying that they were planted by the deep state. Mm. Oh, yes. I that. Uh, but, and, yes. And I think it's important to, for us to note the timing of it all as well, right? Kind of the case he's point. Yeah. Yes, Americans are tired of some of this, but also 
Trump's facing a primary where about 30 percent of folks, if he could rile them up and make them say that this is a two uh, a two tier system, it's a dishonest system. It's the, the field is unbalanced against Republicans. That's something that may, that may help him when he goes up against a DeSantis or a Youngkin. Or against him. Thanks one and all for being here. Growing questions about what caused the crash of a helicopter carrying one of Ukraine's top government officials. That's next. And we're back with our world lead. The Ukrainian government says search and rescue operations have ended after that tragic helicopter crash in the Kiev suburb of Brovary earlier today. The incident killing at least 14 people, including Ukraine's interior minister and a young girl named Malanka. CNN's Fred Plykin spent the day at the scene and spoke to witnesses about the moments before and after the horrific tragedy. Widespread destruction after the helicopter for Ukraine's interior minister crashed near Kiev, an eyewitness describing the scene to me. I saw a helicopter that was flying towards the kindergarten, he says. It landed almost vertically. I saw an explosion. I came down to help clear the debris. He also shot this video of the immediate aftermath. The chopper crashed at the foot of this residential building. As you can see, there's lots of parts strewn around everywhere. It completely burned out, killing everyone inside and several people on the ground. Among the dead, Ukraine's interior minister, Denis Monastirsky, his deputy, Yevgeny Yenin, and State Secretary, Yuri Lukovich. The deputy minister's wife in tears as she reached the scene. Especially tragic, a child was also among several people killed on the ground as the aircraft hit a kindergarten just as parents were dropping their kids off. Two boys describe how they tried to help. Here, they passed injured children over the fence, this boy says. Mostly, they had bruises and scratches. Home, put bandages on them, wrote down their names and surnames and found their parents. The chopper, a Eurocopter Super Puma. Ukrainian authorities have launched an investigation into the possible causes of the crash. Various factors, radio communications and the technical condition of the helicopter needs to be examined. This would take at least several weeks. Denis Monastirsky was one of Ukraine's most important officials. We traveled with him to the Chernobyl nuclear plant shortly after Russian forces withdrew from there. Monastirsky frequently visited the front lines to help boost morale. They have such a strong fighting spirit and are ready for any scenario. We heard the shells exploding, but no one is afraid, as everyone is ready. Ukrainian forces are currently facing a major Russian onslaught in the eastern part of the country near Bakhmut and Solidar. And dozens were killed when a massive Russian missile hit a residential building in Dnipro. And now Ukraine is also mourning the loss of more than a dozen people, including some of the country's top officials. And Jake, those search and rescue operations, they lasted for nine hours today. That's what the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, said. Some of the other possible causes they're looking at is they are also looking at possible pilot error. But we do also understand there was a good deal of fog in that area when that chopper came down. They don't at this point believe that it was possibly shot down, despite the fact that, of course, Ukraine is currently being invaded by the Russians. They do believe this was a tragic accident. And of course, it is a big loss for Ukraine with some of those top officials being killed, Jake.
Fred Plytkin in Kyiv, Ukraine for us. Thanks so much. Turning to our national lead now, we're learning what police found inside the apartment of the suspect in those horrific University of Idaho student murders. CNN's Veronica Miracle has been following this story since the very beginning. And Veronica, this is the first time we're learning about the evidence collected from Brian Koberger's apartment in Washington state. That's exactly right, Jake. And during the search warrant, we could really get a sense of what police were looking for. They cast a very wide net, and they found uh, more than a dozen items that appear to be uh, quite significant to this investigation. So I'm just going to list some of them off and then talk about why this could be important to the investigation. They found strands of hair, a sample of reddish-brown stain on an uncased pillow. They found a black glove, Walmart and Marshall's receipts, and they found a fire TV stick as well as a computer tower. Now, we know... Reading the search warrant and also the affidavit, they were looking for trace evidence of hair, whether that was a human or an animal. Uh, in that affidavit, we were able to discover that Kaylee Gonsalves' dog was home at the time of the murders. And according to the search warrant in Brian Koberger's apartment, they were able to find several hair strands, including a possible animal hair strand. We know they were looking for blood and other bodily fluid, and they collected a dark red spot, two reddish-brown stains from a pillow, as well as mattress covers with multiple stains. They were also looking for clothing. That suspect, seen by the surviving roommate in the house, was said to be wearing uh, dark clothing from head to toe, including a mask that covered the nose and the mouth. And police were able to find a Walmart receipt with a Dickies tag, two Marshalls receipts, and a nitrite-type black glove, basically like a medical glove. And finally, they were looking for uh, any kind of digital images, any images that showed the victims, the house, the neighborhood, anything that uh, showed that he may, that Brian Koberger may have looked up murders or violent assaults or even how to avoid detections after committing crimes. They were able to find a fire TV stick and a computer tower. But Jake, what they did not discover was a murder weapon inside that apartment and that murder weapon still has not been found. Jake. All right, Veronica Miracle, thanks so much for that update. It is now up to a judge to determine if Illinois' new ban on some semi-automatic weapons will go forward after several sheriffs in the state say they will not enforce that law. Stay with us. Right now, racks of assault-style semi-automatic weapons are on display at gun stores in Illinois, but they are not for sale after that state became the ninth in the nation to pass a ban on those specific firearms last week. And now gun activist groups are fighting back. At least three lawsuits are in the works, including one emergency hearing today that could put a temporary stay on Illinois' new ban as soon as Friday. The new law does not require current owners of these assault-style semi-automatic weapons to give them up, but it does mean that they will have to register those firearms within the year. Nonetheless, dozens of Illinois sheriffs are now saying they will not enforce parts of the new ban, citing the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Listen to Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker responding to the criticism this morning. It's a lot of political grandstanding by elected Republican sheriffs. The truth is that there's nothing for them to enforce at this point. Let's bring in CNN contributor Stephen Gutowski. Uh, he's at SHOT Show. That's the gun industry's trade show in Las Vegas right now at the Flamingo, I believe. Stephen, Second Amendment activists are worried that this ban and registration will ultimately lead to the confiscation of these specific uh, weapons. Is that a legitimate fear, do you think? Uh, yes, certainly. I mean, obviously, registration uh, makes it 
practical to try and confiscate firearms from people. That that's the concern that a lot of gun owners have with with that policy. And you know, you have seen some attempts at confiscation of certain at least magazines here in the United States, some firearms as well in California uh, and, and uh, jurisdictions like that. You could absolutely see down the line in Illinois something along that same kind of proposal. It's not what this bill is, as you mentioned. People can keep the guns they currently own if they register them, but that's, that's certainly a major concern among gun rights advocates. How does Illinois' ban stack up against the eight other states that have enacted similar bans against what are called assault-style semi-automatic weapons? And how hard will this be for the government of Illinois to enforce? This ban is somewhere in the middle of what you see uh, out there right now in uh, relatively deep blue states that have these sorts of policies. It's not as strict as, say, California or Massachusetts, but it's stricter than the 94 national ban was. It's similar in, in the way it's constructed, except instead of allowing people to uh, features that uh, are banned that uh, you're only allowed to have one, so it affects far more firearms. Uh, and then as far as enforcement goes, I think it will be fairly difficult, especially without cooperation of local law enforcement, as you alluded to at the top of the segment here, uh, because Illinois knows who has guns because they have a firearm owner identification card system. So if you want to own guns, you have to get one of these cards first, but it doesn't know what guns each person has. So how they would go about uh, arresting people who choose not to register firearms or register these these guns after 300 days, uh, it, it's really unclear. The state police could do it, but I don't know that they have the resources. And if they don't have local cooperation, it's going to be very, very difficult. Well, let's talk about these Illinois sheriffs um, who have come out in, in droves pledging not to enforce parts of this ban. Um, you, you talk about a movement called Second Amendment Sanctuary Cities. Ex- explain that. Yeah, so people might be familiar with the sanctuary cities uh, in regards to immigration law that sort of came up about the last decade or so. Now, in the gun rights community, they've copied this tactic. And now a lot of counties across uh, many states, uh, it was sort of very popular, really got took off in Virginia a couple of years ago when Democrats had control there and were considering a number of gun control policies. Uh, but it's it's now taken root in a lot of other states. And this is kind of the first real test of it, because a lot of it had been somewhat symbolic in the sense that the they would the local counties would pass resolutions that say we won't enforce uh, what we consider to be unconstitutional gun laws. But a lot of it was forward looking, like if you pass something like an assault weapons ban, we're not going to enforce that. Or if you try to confiscate people's guns, we're we're going to resist that effort. Now you have a situation where these sheriffs, and I believe there's over 80 of them, including one for the second most populous uh, county in the state, are really putting that to the test. This, and the governor, as you, uh, as comments you played at the beginning of this, is sort of pushing back and challenging them on, on their refusal to enforce these laws. And it's really not clear how that's going to shake out and how much power the governor has over these elected local officials is, is not, uh, I think, really clear. There's almost a constitutional crisis sort of situation in the state over, over this kind of uh, activism. All right, Stephen Gutowski in Las Vegas uh, at the big uh, industry gun show. Uh, thank you so much. Good to see you. Uh, more now in our politics lead and a question being asked in Ocean Township, New Jersey. Will the rightful winner of a recent school board election be seated? That's now an issue after it was revealed that an uploading error during last November's election led some votes to be counted 
twice. CNN's Omar Jimenez is following this for us. And Omar, the error could change the outcome in one race, but obviously that's one too many. How did this happen and how was it how was it caught? Yeah, Jay. So basically, we don't know if the winner of a local school board race is actually the winner. And this goes all the way back to last summer. The Monmouth County, New Jersey election system vendor said that they were updating a soft or reinstalling some software and they missed a step that would have caught votes being counted twice. So because they missed that step, the system says, well, votes were inadvertently counted twice here. And the county elections offices followed up with a statement today saying that as a result of the problem, there were inaccurate vote tallies in six of Monmouth County's 466 districts. The outcome of one election could change as a result. The Board of Education election in Ocean Township, which was very close, differential of about 20 votes. The Monmouth County Board of Elections has asked the attorney general's office to file necessary paperwork for a recount. Now, this is a school board race between Steve Clayton and Jeff uh, Weinstein, who's the former board president there. Now, Steve Clayton thought he was one of three elected to the local school board. Then yesterday he was told, well, actually, we're not so sure. And I talked to him earlier today. And as you can imagine, he was a little disappointed. He said, well, I thought I won this race. I was sworn in in front of friends and family. And now we're here. On the other side of things, uh, Weinstein says that, well, I'm happy we caught this error, but I want to let this process play out because obviously we want the rightful winner to be declared here. He knew it was going to be an emotional roller coaster running for a seat, but he didn't expect this to be part of it. We're still awaiting to hear from officials on what exactly led to the audit that caught some of these votes being counted twice. But of course, all of this is part of this investigation to figure out, bottom line, who actually won this race. All right, Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. She is one of the most dangerous spies in the world you've probably never heard of. She just got released from a supermax prison. The story of the woman called the Blue Wren. Stay with us. The most dangerous spy that you've probably never heard of was just released from a supermax federal prison in Texas. Ana Montes was a top analyst for the intelligence arm of the Pentagon, also known as the DIA, for nearly 17 years. She briefed the president and general. She won top intelligence awards and was even known as the Queen of Cuba for her mastery of that country's affairs. All the while, Montes was funneling highly sensitive U.S. secrets to Fidel Castro and the Castro regime, rendering nearly every American effort to eavesdrop on Cuba from the mid-80s to the early 2000s useless. Montes flew under the radar for so long by committing U.S. intelligence to memory, sending messages to her Cuban handlers from her apartment after her day job. Her story, amazingly, is detailed in a brand new book, Codename Blue Wren. And let's bring in the author, my friend, uh, Jim Popkin. Congratulations. Thank you. Wow. Really, really cool. Um, Montez was released 12 days ago. Her lawyer shared this photo, and after two decades in prison, you say she is not at all apologetic for her crimes. So where is she now, and what does her, the now 65-year-old's future hold? So she was just released, as you said, from a federal prison uh, in Texas. She flew immediately to Puerto Rico, and she issued this incredible statement, fiery, not contrite in any way. She took a, a jab at the U.S. policy in Cuba and the ongoing, essentially, embargo there. And it was fascinating that she wouldn't apologize in any way. 
after spending 21 years in jail for espionage. So one of the most shocking parts of the story is how many of her close relatives worked at, for the FBI Correct. while she was actively spying on the United States for Cuba. Her sister even investigated Cuban spies in Miami. So she wasn't only uh, evading the capture and suspicion of her bosses, but her own family. Yeah, her family, totally loyal, patriotic Americans. Her sister Lucy was a translator for the FBI based in Miami. She got assigned to a unit chasing Cuban spies, which is amazing. She had no idea until arrest day that her sister was Fidel Castro's greatest spy ever. Her brother Tito was an FBI special agent in Atlanta. His wife was a special agent. At one point, Anna would go to you know Thanksgivings before family members there, badges and guns all over the place. And she's, you know, a, a spy put in place by Havana. Have, has somebody bought the movie rights already? Because this is really, it's really incredible. Go on. No, <laughs> we're working on it. You're working on it. Because, yes, I mean, I'm just having that scene in my head right now. Um, she didn't do it for money. Correct. Why didn't she do it? She's an ideological spy motivated by politics, her hatred of the Reagan era meddling in Central America, particularly Nicaragua and El Salvador. So she got involved. She got recruited uh, in graduate school by another Cuban agent who was a student at Johns Hopkins at the SICE school in Washington. At SICE? At SICE. Oh, wow. And, That's um, not in the brochure. <laughs> <laughs> it should be at this point because there also was a professor there yeah. who was convicted as a Cuban spy as well. But uh, she's recruited while she's in graduate school, and she makes this alarming decision because of her politics to spy against her country and enters the Pentagon's uh, intelligence arm, the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, as uh, already a recruited Cuban spy. So you write, quote, the Cubans quickly sold or traded Anna's information to the Russians, their old patrons, or to other interested parties, and went on to, quote, the head of U.S. National Counterintelligence's uh, testimony on her case, quote, there is a continuing market for such stolen U.S. secrets, which can be sold or bartered to third-party states or terrorist organizations that have their own uses uh, for their and for your own uses for the information. 20 years later, could, is it possible that enemies of the United States could still be using the information she gave? It's probably dated at this point because it's even more than 20 years old at this uh, stage. But the problem with what she did, because Cuba is kind of a paper tiger in terms of their military. Sure. They have a great intelligence service. And they have a connection. They were trained by the Soviets. And so they take information and they sell it or they trade it to the Russians and other adversaries. So it's, it's dangerous that way when she reveals 17 years of classified information. Well, what a fascinating story, Jim Popkin. The, the book is Codename Blue Wren. Thank you so much and congratulations. Thanks so much, Jake. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call The Situation Room with an update on the six-year-old who shot his teacher in Virginia. Stay with us. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.